At this time, let's turn in our Bibles to Paul's first epistle to the Corinthian church. Chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we'll be reading the entire chapter. Let's listen now as God speaks to us through His Holy Word, beginning in verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. We continue our series in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as we dive back into the Apostle's description of Christian love. He's set forth before us here the indispensability of Christian love. We can have almost anything imaginable But without Christian love, true Christian love for God and man from the heart, we have absolutely nothing. We can have all the spiritual gifts in the world. We can have a great acquaintance with biblical doctrine. We can even understand all the mysteries of the faith. We can have a prayer life that in some sense is very zealous and fervent. And we even see answers to prayer and our faith from an outward perspective, seems like it could remove mountains. And perhaps there's someone who gives all of their goods to feed the poor or somebody else who dies as a martyr professing the truth and righteousness of the Christian faith. And all of these outward things are there, but without love, it's all nothing. 
It's absolutely a zero at the end of the day in the final analysis according to the Apostle Paul. And the Corinthians were obsessed with all of these outward appearances and spiritual gifts. They had underestimated the importance of spiritual graces. And at the very end of chapter 12, he urges them to earnestly desire the best gifts. And, and in that context, he's saying there are certain gifts that allow you to minister to other people, uh, to speak a word in season to other people, to exhort and, and so forth, and teach and things like this. He says, desire those greater gifts, not just the ones that make you look good and speaking in tongues and faith of miracles and things like this, but desire the best gifts. But he says, even beyond that, yet I will show you a more excellent way. So he says that the focal point of our Christian life and the Christian church in this more excellent way is not the spiritual gifts, which are important, but the spiritual graces, which are all summed up for us in Christian love. If you go through the Old Testament and the New Testament, you'll find again and again and again when God seeks to summarize His law, which is the blueprint of spiritual grace. God's law describes the character of God, the character of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit writing it on our hearts. And whenever God seeks to summarize His law, He, he, he speaks about love. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Paul repeats it again and again. Romans 13, Galatians 6. That love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the sum of all Christian grace. Spiritual grace in the life of the believer. And so without that true spiritual grace in the heart, all the gifts in the world amount to nothing. They may be beneficial to other members of the church. People heard Judas preaching and they were converted. Or maybe Judas performed a miracle and a lame person could walk. And there were benefits, but at the end of the day, it'd be better if Judas had never been born. Uh, it's, it's a zero, if not less than zero. Now, the love that's described here, as we've seen so far, is a balanced love. It's balanced. It's the beauty of holiness. And beauty involves perfect proportion of, of all the graces and all the attributes of God. God's beauty of holiness. And it's reflected in the beauty of our holiness. Perfect balance and proportion. And we see that as we move into verse 6, which tells us that love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It's in verse 6 this evening with God's help that we'll be focusing our attention, and especially on the first half, love does not rejoice in iniquity, or the word could be translated more directly actually, unrighteousness. Unrighteousness. It's just the negation of the Greek word for righteousness. Love does not rejoice in iniquity or unrighteousness. Now, there's a perfect balance and proportion here between the objective side of love and the subjective side of love. God has created us with a mind, with an intellect. God has given us the ability to think and reason and understand the propositional truths and commandments of the Word of God. And so, love is objective. 
True Christian love is organically and concretely defined by God's objective revelation. And that revelation involves doctrinal truth and moral law. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. In other words, love is defined by and guided by the objective standard of God's Word. The difference between righteousness and unrighteousness. The difference between truth and error. These things guide love such that love doesn't just embrace things arbitrarily. But love, true Christian love, hates that which is unrighteous and false and loves and rejoices over that which is true and good and righteous according to God's revealed Word. So true Christian love is objective. But also, true Christian love has a subjective side. Notice, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. There's an element here not only of the mind understanding truth and righteousness, and of the will choosing it and desiring it, but of the emotions rejoicing in it or refusing to rejoice. In other words, being grieved by it. True Christian love is not merely objective and intellectual. It's not merely a thought or a conviction intellectually. It's not merely a choice volitionally, but it's also manifested in our emotions that we rejoice in what is true and righteous and we are we find what is not true and righteous to be disgusting. We, we turn away from it. We don't rejoice in it, but we're grieved by it. And so it's important to see here that true Christian love is inseparable from the doctrines and duties of the Bible. And so uh, when we look at our culture today and many in the Christian church which are so focused on the subjective side of love, and they would say, well, it's all about your intents and your motives in reality, there's an objective truth and an objective righteousness that is to guide our intents and our motives. And we can mean well from the heart, but if what we're doing is not in accord with truth and righteousness, then it's not genuine Christian love. And it's not genuine Christian obedience or genuine Christian grace in our lives. But at the same time, we can't be the frozen chosen with just this intellectual knowledge upstairs but there's no heartbeat, there's no pious spiritual affection that causes us to hate what is evil and cling even with emotional attachment to what is good. There there must be, in other words, uh, religious truth and righteousness, but also religious affections, as, as Jonathan Edwards spoke of, religious emotions that flow from the truth and righteousness of God's Word. Now, the Apostle Paul, in his writings, frequently uses this type of terminology. He frequently sets unrighteousness, which is our word iniquity, it's really unrighteousness, he sets that word over against the word truth. He does it on several occasions. We may recall from our sermon series in Romans, Romans 1.18, we're told, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So here he's setting 
unrighteousness against the truth. If someone is unrighteous, then they suppress the truth in that unrighteousness. We tend to think of truth in terms of doctrine and righteousness or unrighteousness in terms of morality. But for Paul, these two things are inseparable. The doctrines and duties of the Bible are inseparable. And so, if you're against the morality of the Bible and you're unrighteous, well, then you're going to suppress the doctrinal truth. These things are interchangeable. The doctrines and duties of the Bible, they go together like a hand in a glove. Romans 2, verse 8, uses this same language. But to those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, he says they'll receive indignation and wrath. Again, you see that juxtaposition there of those either obeying the truth or obeying unrighteousness, which tells us that false doctrine is immoral and immorality is ultimately bad doctrine. You see in the book of Titus, he's dealing with moral issues in the family relationships, and he says these are the things that accord with sound doctrine. So doctrine and duty go together integrally in the mind of the Apostle Paul. And perhaps one of the most powerful examples of Paul using this type of language is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, as he's describing the great apostasy from the gospel, uh, the man of sin who sits in the temple of God taking unto himself divine attributes, which our confession of faith interprets as, as the papacy. But notice 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 10, speaking of this apostasy from the gospel uh, that Satan has perpetrated throughout the ages. Verse 10, And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You see several relevant points here. Number one, It's not enough to affirm the truth of the gospel. These people fell away because they didn't love it, right? Love rejoices in the truth and turns away and is disgusted by error and unrighteousness and iniquity. These people had some outward affirmation of the truth of the Christian faith, but they didn't love it. There wasn't the religious affection flowing from their their desire and their knowledge of the truth. So they didn't love it, and so they lost it. But notice in verse 12, that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So here we see, again, truth set over against unrighteousness. Those who didn't believe the truth took pleasure in unrighteousness. But true love does not take pleasure in unrighteousness. It does not rejoice in iniquity. So this is the point that Paul is making. Now, how are we to understand the first half of this verse? Well, let's understand it in this way, that true Christian love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rather is grieved by it. True Christian love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rather is grieved by it. And this will be our doctrinal emphasis for the evening, and then, Lord willing, next time we tackle this passage, 
we'll consider the positive side that love rejoices in the truth. But true Christian love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rather is grieved by it. Now, we've said that the word iniquity means unrighteousness. Adikia, the, the, the word for righteousness negated with that letter A or alpha. Unrighteousness. We could translate it injustice. And you say, well, why do our translators use the word iniquity in the New King James? Well, maybe they're following the, the original King James Version, which says iniquity. But why do they use the word iniquity? Well, think about the word iniquity. It's very similar to a word that we would associate with unrighteousness and injustice, namely the word inequity. You can see the connection. Inequity, something that is inequitable, something that is not fair, something that violates the objective standard of righteousness and justice. So you can see, at least in the history of the English language, where we're all really saying the same thing. Iniquity, injustice, unrighteousness. That's the idea. True Christian love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, injustice, or inequity. In other words, it doesn't rejoice in sin. This idea of iniquity is something that is contrary to biblical righteousness and therefore contrary to biblical love for God and for our neighbor. Very simple concept. What do we mean when we say that true Christian love does not rejoice in iniquity? Well, we've already seen it in a parallel passage. That true Christian love does not take pleasure in unrighteousness. True Christian love does not find pleasure and delight in that which God hates. True Christian love does not love the things God hates. It doesn't take pleasure in the things that God has forbidden. It does not. It cannot. It can't celebrate iniquity or injustice or unrighteousness. It can't praise it. It can't commend it. And we live in a day in which the love of many has grown cold and iniquity abounds. And the celebration of iniquity abounds. Many of us have ministered on occasion at uh, various abortion mills in the area. And uh, others of us have watched videos of, of Christians engaged in this type of important ministry of seeking to spare the lives of little babies and seeking to save lives through evangelism. But in these encounters, you'll often find women and sometimes even men literally celebrating the murder of their own children. Dancing, singing, mocking. I'm not saying it's everyone. There are some people that go in and out of these clinics, these mills, that you can tell there's something of a burden there and we seek to minister to them and, and convict them of sin. But there are some occasions that are flat out demonic and diabolical where there are people that are literally rejoicing in the unjust taking away of the life of their own child, mocking, celebrating, so on and so forth. It's, it's a horrific reality, but confirmation of what we read in Proverbs 8, verse 36, that in terms of Christ as the wisdom of God, He says, all who hate Me love death. All who hate Me love death. Rejoicing taking pleasure, delight, celebrating, praising, commending that which is contrary to biblical righteousness and contrary to biblical love as defined by God's law. Well, we ought not to rejoice in iniquity. And true love does not rejoice in iniquity. Rather, it is grieved by it. 
And you can see this in, of course, the Psalms, the anatomy of the soul. We can see in many respects a pattern, a blueprint for our emotional life in the Psalms, how we ought to respond to injustice and unrighteousness and iniquity all around us. How ought we to respond to it? Psalm 119, verse 53, indignation has taken hold of me because of the wicked who forsake your law. He goes on to say, your statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. So it's not as though he's overwhelmed with indignation and anger and it consumes him and makes him an angry, negative person to be around. He's meditating on the law of God. It's his song. It's his delight. He finds joy in the precepts and promises of God's Word. But insofar as he considers the wicked and their unrighteousness and their iniquity, we're told that indignation has taken hold of him. It's not something he forces himself to do, but because the Spirit of God hates iniquity and the Spirit of God lives inside of the believer, here even in the Old Testament, therefore, he's overcome. He's taken hold of by this spiritual affection of indignation, of hating, and just being revolted by this iniquity. That's the Holy Spirit inside his soul influencing him in this way. He's grieved by it. You see it in the same psalm, verse 136. Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. So, Here you see his grief manifested not in a sort of anger and indignation, a righteous anger and indignation, but here we find it in terms of this grief, sorrow, sadness, rivers of water running down from his eyes. You think of Jeremiah in chapters 8 and 9 where the weeping prophet just pours out tears for the daughter of God's people in Jerusalem and their unbelief and their destruction. Uh, You see the Lord Jesus Christ weeping over Jerusalem. 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 He's grieved. Rivers of water run down from His eyes because men do not keep the law of God. Verse 158 of the same psalm. I see the treacherous and am disgusted because they do not keep Your Word. That's not because He sees people being treacherous to Him in a sort of self-centered grief at a specific sin against him, even ungodly people can hate sin and injustice because it negatively impacts them, right? And you see this in the world, these zealots for social justice, and they're out there proclaiming a message of justice and righteousness while, they ste- you know, while they're walking out of a footlocker with four boxes of shoes that they've stolen, right? They're engaging in injustice against other people while claiming to be against injustice, well, they don't, they're not grieved at injustice or iniquity for its own sake. It's all self-serving. It's all self-interest. And in a sense, we're all like that. We all tend to get upset at the sins that are directed against our own self-interest, but maybe we're not so upset and indignant against just injustice in general, especially when we're the ones that are committing the unjust action. So we can mock those social justice warriors walking out of the footlocker, but in reality, that's all of us at times by nature. It's an inconsistency 
But the psalmist here, it's not describing in his life that sort of inconsistent, self-serving fascination with justice. But again, verse 158, he sees the treacherous and he is disgusted because they do not keep your word. Why is he disgusted? Well, he's disgusted when he doesn't keep God's word. He's disgusted when other people don't keep God's word. The common factor here for him is that he hates sin. He hates injustice. He hates iniquity. He hates unrighteousness. He's grieved by it. He's disgusted by it. And the same disgust that enables him to walk in the straight and narrow and avoid it himself is the same disgust that he has when other people sin. And I want to talk about why true love is grieved. But there is one passage I think that especially as we're thinking about our nation, we would do well to take heed to. And that is in Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel chapter 9 describes God beginning the process of bringing judgment upon His people. And He sends out a man who is clothed with linen, who has a pen in his hand, and he's essentially the man going around taking names and, and deciding who's going to be judged. And, and perhaps this is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's unclear uh, to me in any, in any way. But the fact is, God is assessing the nation prior to a momentous judgment against them for their sin. And we're told in verse 4 that the Lord instructs this man clothed in linen who has the writer's ink horn at his side. And the Lord says this, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. So this is what distinguishes, really, the true Christian. That's, That's essentially what's being distinguished here. That there are true Christians, and God is going to spare them in some sense, from the full brunt of this judgment, and who are the ones that show evidence that they're true Christians? Or perhaps there are backslidden Christians that aren't sighing and crying, but you get the point. Who are the ones that give full evidence and fruit of conversion and who will be spared by God's hand of judgment, who receive this special mark on their foreheads? It's those who sigh and cry over the abominable disobedience of God's people. They, they find it disgusting. They're like Lot with all of his problems. With all the problems Lot had in his life, and his family, he had many problems. But he was a righteous man, Peter tells us, and he was vexed by the ungodly conduct of the wicked. And when God tells Abraham that he's going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, it's interesting that he says to Abram that he has heard the cries against Sodom. Perhaps that was some of the vexing and perplexing cries of Lot himself. And that's a good thing. To sigh and cry over abomination and disobedience and iniquity and unrighteousness, that's what true love does. It's grieved by it. Now, why is it grieved by it? First, because iniquity dishonors God. When David committed iniquity in Psalm 51, he says that He is ashamed of it. He confesses it as a great and vile offense. 
and he says it's primarily against God. Why, does he, why is he grieved at his own sin? Not because his son was struck dead, not merely because of the consequences, the sword will not depart from his house and so forth, but against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It's about God first and foremost. And that's why true Christian love is grieved at sin because true Christian love first and foremost is directed toward God himself. We find in uh, Romans 2 verse 24 that Un, uh, unrighteousness and injustice and iniquity and all of these kinds of things, they cause the Gentiles to blaspheme the name of God. And, and that's one of the reasons we're grieved at sin. Especially sin among professing covenant members because it reflects poorly upon God Himself and upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And people mock and the enemies of God, Nathan, when he confronted David, he said one of the things that, that makes his sin so vile is that the enemies of God are blaspheming because of it. It dishonors God. Secondly, it destroys the sinner. It destroys the sinner. That's why in Isaiah 58 verse 1, Isaiah lifts up his voice like a trumpet to tell God's people their sin and their transgression. Why? Because chapter 59, verse 2. Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Why is he so zealous to trumpet forth this message of the conviction of sin? Why? Because it is the sin of God's people that has separated them from God. My friends, all goodness and blessing is in God. You think of God in the person of Christ. Apart from Him, you can do nothing. There's no blessedness outside of a reconciled relationship to God. Uh, there can be fleeting blessings of uh, God's general benevolence, but my point here is that sin destroys the sinner. It separates him from God. It removes him from God's blessing uh, in this life to some extent and certainly in the life to come. Sin brings death. The soul who sins, Ezekiel 38 tells us, shall die. And that's why not just the prophet Ezekiel, but in fact the Lord Himself pleads with these unrighteous, iniquitous offenders, these sinners, the Lord pleads with them. Ezekiel 38, uh, sorry, Ezekiel 18, verse 30. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. He says, repent, turn from your transgressions, so that... So what's the purpose here of God appealing to these hell-deserving, hell-bound sinners? He says, I'm, I'm urging you to repent, so that iniquity will not be your ruin. You see, and this is why we're grieved by iniquity. This is why God, in a sense, though it's anthropomorphic language, but God is grieved in a biblical sense, that language is used. Grieved by iniquity. And we ought to be grieved by iniquity. We ought to call people to repentance, not celebrate their sin, not commend their sin, not rejoice over their sin, not even, in a sense, tolerate their sin, but we ought to call them to repentance so that iniquity will not be their ruin. It's out of true Christian love for other people that in an appropriate and God-honoring and Christ-like way, 
we confront sin in other people, whether it's a brother in Christ and uh, just an offense that needs to be dealt with, or whether it's an unconverted person living in sin, uh, iniquity will be the ruin of our Christian life, and for the unconverted, it will be their eternal ruin in hell. And so the Lord says, moving on, cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed, and get yourself a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord. Therefore, turn and live. So we have no pleasure, and God has no pleasure, in sin in itself because it dishonors Him. It violates His character. But in addition, God is grieved by sin, and we ought to be grieved by sin because we have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies. Sin destroys the sinner. And so much of this is reflected in the ministry and teachings of Christ, which we don't have time to look at. So, why are we grieved by iniquity? Why is true love grieved by iniquity? It dishonors God. It destroys the sinner. Thirdly, it defiles many. Sin is contagious. Sin is like the coronavirus. Sin is like leprosy. It's passed from one person to the next. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. The root of bitterness, Hebrews 12, verse 15, if it's not dealt with, it defiles many. And so it doesn't just destroy the individual sinner, but like Achan, it destroys the whole camp. And it brings judgment upon the church, upon the state, upon the family. Sin defiles many. Sin in uh, my own life as a father. My children see that and then they follow my bad example and so on and so forth. Under the third and fourth generation of those who walk in iniquity, the Lord visits that iniquity. It defiles many. Fourthly, we're grieved by it because it harms others. Iniquity, inequity, unrighteousness, injustice, uh, typically in the Bible is presented in terms of the second table of the law. Sinning against other people. Okay, so children, if you think about if you steal food, if you steal a cookie from your, your sister or your brother, you've dishonored God because God says thou shalt not steal. You're not trusting in God to provide you with food and with a cookie and with the delights of this world. You're, you're not trusting in God. You're taking what belongs to your brother or your sister. And that sin, the Bible says, will bring God's judgment on you. It's going to ruin your life. It's going to make you feel guilty. And God is going to make you see how evil it is in one way or another, right? But ultimately, if we don't repent of our sin, we go to hell. So it destroys us. Stealing destroys us and has destroyed many people uh, throughout history. Uh, Adam and Eve, the first sin, stealing the forbidden fruit. And look at what happened to the world after that. So, children, you've stolen the cookie. You've dishonored God. You've uh, brought ruin and punishment on yourself. Perhaps one of your other siblings, another brother or sister, sees you steal that cookie, and then they steal somebody else's cookie. And pretty soon, all the children in the home are stealing people's cookies. You're, You're actually influencing other children, other people, in a bad way. But also, you've harmed the person whose cookie you stole. 
right? They, they ate their, you know, they cleaned their plate. They ate their dinner like mom told them to do. And here comes the cookie and now you've robbed them. You've harmed them. That's unjust. It's not fair. It's not right. And you've harmed the person that you've uh, treated in that unjust, unfair way. So all of these things come into play. And you look at a society in which we live where iniquity abounds and the love of many has grown cold and everybody's celebrating iniquity of all kinds and perversion of all kinds and every man does what's right in his own eyes and you find people are being harmed all over the place. You know, this was supposed to be a society of freedom and love and it was going to be great, but the more we rejoice in iniquity, our love grows cold. And it's not an enjoyable place to be. And we're threatened and we're vulnerable. There's greater violence. There's greater violence against women and children. There's greater violence across the board in our cities. Murder and violence of all kinds. Rape and human trafficking and all kinds of things. This, this iniquity, this injustice, when it, when it dishonors God and destroys people and destroys and defiles many people, it creates an environment where everyone is trying to get what they want and they're steamrolling the rights and privileges of other people and treating people inequitably and fighting and biting and devouring and warring against one another. As um, Romans chapter 3 says, when it, when it describes human sinfulness, when it's let loose in this kind of way, it says the way of peace they have not known. It's a war zone. It harms other people. But the last reason, before we get to our application, the last reason that we ought to be grieved by iniquity, and I guess I've already alluded to this in all the references to the character of God, but in particular, in particular, the Lord Jesus Christ has set us a perfect example in this respect. Psalm 45, as it describes the beauty and glory of King Jesus, tells us this. Verse 6, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Notice what it says then in verse 7. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. So that's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's His character. He loves what is righteous. He hates what is wicked. In other words, we could say Jesus Christ, who is the God who is love incarnate, so it's, He's love incarnate, and this love incarnate does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. He loves righteousness. He hates wickedness. And it says, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. What's that telling us? That our, our mediator, the God-man mediator, in His humanity, okay, it speaks of Him in His divine nature, because it says, your throne, O God. So we see that the Messiah is fully God, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. But in the end of verse 7, therefore God, your God, has anointed you. That's speaking of the Lord Jesus as the God-man. Because as man, He looks to God as God. He's the servant of the Lord. So He's equal with God as the Son of God, but as the Son of Man, as the mediator, the God-man, 
He represents us, and so He obeys the Father. He looks to the Father. The Father is greater than I, as He says in John's Gospel. And in that sense, God is His God and has anointed Him with the oil of gladness more than His companions. So there's an association here with His loving righteousness, rejoicing in the truth, if we borrow the words of our text. When when Christ rejoices in the truth and refuses to rejoice in iniquity, we're told that in doing so, that He receives an even greater measure of the spirit of joy and gladness. That the Savior's joy is increased insofar as He refuses to rejoice in iniquity and insofar as He rejoices in truth and righteousness. Now think about that. The world wants to tell you that the true path of joy and of delight and of being a happy, blessed person is either by pursuing iniquity and drinking down the fleeting pleasures of sin. This is what Satan used to tempt Adam and Eve in the garden. You eat this forbidden fruit, you'll be as gods. Your life will get better. You'll be happy. You're miserable without it. You need to rejoice in this iniquity. You need to drink it down. On the other hand, the world, if it can't get you to do that, it'll say, well, uh, at least rejoice in those who do pursue iniquity. Commend them. Celebrate them. This is what it means to be a truly loving and joyful person. And if you're not like that, you're just an old prudish Puritan sitting in the corner and, you know, a wallflower refusing to participate in society and uh, you're, you're just miserable, utterly miserable. One of these Puritans who's just overwhelmed with grief that someone somewhere is having a good time. You see, that's a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus anointing with the joy and gladness of the Holy Spirit was integrally connected with the fact that He took joy and pleasure in what was good and righteous and true and that He refused to rejoice in iniquity because when you put your eggs in that basket, they're going to get broken. When you put your joy and you invest your heart into the things of this world, the love of many will grow cold and leave you empty. But when you rejoice in God's truth and His righteousness, the joy of the Holy Spirit, even as He was poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ, even so He flows down to the body of Christ, He will increase your joy and increase your gladness. And so by refusing to rejoice in iniquity, you're actually increasing the overall joy in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is a great reason to follow the example of Christ and to not rejoice in iniquity. Now let's make some points of application. First, true Christian love does not celebrate, glamorize, or take pleasure in personal sin. True Christian love does not celebrate, glamorize, or take pleasure in personal sin. I'm thinking here of the personal sin of the person who's taking delight. If you have true Christian love in your heart and you're actively exercising it, you're not going to be delighting in your own personal sins. You're not going to be delighting in your past sins. Psalm 25 verse 7, the psalmist says, Lord, forget my sins of youth. Forget them. Forget them. 
True Christian love does not want to dwell on past sins and even glamorize them and telling stories of the good old days when I was unconverted and I did this and I said that and isn't that funny? Isn't that interesting? I'm, you know, I was the big man and here's what I did. Oh, but now I'm saved. You, you hear this kind of thing from time to time. But true Christian love does not rejoice in iniquities past prior to our conversion. Jeremiah 6.14 says God's people refuse to know how to blush, but true Christian love knows how to blush and feel shame even for past sins prior to conversion. The true Christian is never boasting and celebrating and glamorizing those past sins. But it also includes present sins. In Isaiah chapter 3, verse 9, God accuses His people of being like Sodom in flouting and parading their sin, refusing to blush, refusing to feel any shame. That was a characteristic mark of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, to, to boast and to take pride in their perversion. We see that, of course, today, even using that type of language. But true Christian love doesn't do that. It doesn't celebrate or glamorize or take pleasure in personal sin. If you have people that stand up, even in Reformed-ish churches today, and they say, well, I'm a gay Christian. And, and, and they're talking all about their uh, sexual orientation. And well, God's helped me not to uh, act on it, but these are the thoughts that go through my mind. Well, my friends, sinful thoughts are sinful thoughts, and you ought not to be glamorizing them and almost celebrating them that I'm a gay Christian. I have an orientation, but I don't act on it. Well, you know, as I've said before, um, what if somebody said, I'm a racist and I hate people of a different ethnicity. I just don't act on it. I have a desire to kill them, but I just don't act on it. Okay, are you going to be boasting and bragging about that? Uh, a, a desire or an inclination to commit sexual perversion is a sin in itself. It needs to be mortified. It needs to be put to death like all sinful inclinations and temptations from the inside. But we ought not to take pleasure and boast in these things. Second, True Christian love refuses to celebrate the self-destructive sinful lifestyles of others. True Christian love refuses to celebrate the self-destructive sinful lifestyles of others. And so if there are sins that are separating people from God, that are threatening people with eternal damnation, Sins that the Lord says, such and such a sin, that person will never enter the kingdom of God. If there are people committing those kinds of sins in their lifestyle, we ought not to celebrate that. Romans 1 tells us that in a wicked society that's rebelling against God and suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, we're going to be tempted to do that. Romans 1 verse 32, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. We have a duty to refuse to participate in any celebration of sinful lifestyles that exist in the world today. And it's, it's an easy thing to sit here and say, well, do this, don't do that. But my friends, some of us may lose our jobs. Some of us, in standing alone for the Lord, as a matter of conscience, in obeying God's Word on this point in terms of Christian love, refusing to rejoice in iniquity, we could be in a difficult position. So it's nothing to take lightly. 
but this is true Christian love. Refusing to celebrate the self-destructive sinful lifestyles of others. Thirdly, true Christian love takes no pleasure in the exposure or chastening of others' sins. True Christian love takes no pleasure in the exposure or chastening of others' sins. And we ought to, as John says, rejoice that God's people are walking in the truth. But there's this tendency, perhaps among those who think evil and keep a record of wrongs, as we've seen in the uh, trajectory of our passage in recent sermons, people who have that mindset might hear that a brother or sister has fallen into sin, has stumbled in some way, or is under God's chastening hand in some way or another, and they use it as an opportunity to try to leapfrog them, to put that person down, to lift themselves up. And in some sense, they take pleasure and they gossip about it and they talk all about it to try to put that person down and put them in their place. And they rejoice at the exposure or the chastening of another person for sin. Solomon warns us against this in Proverbs 24, verse 17. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. So we ought never to take pleasure when somebody else messes up, and maybe they're our enemy in some respect, maybe there was some kind of a disagreement, and in some way their sin maybe in our minds validates or vindicates some claim that we were making, and you see there comes the flesh into the equation, and we're tempted to take pleasure. Oh, that proves my point. Look at them go. My friends, we can't fall into that. True love doesn't do that. So we need to repent, and by the sovereign grace of God, we're going to be able to overcome that, but we need to. Fourthly, true Christian love hates all false religion and all false doctrine. You can see this in Psalm 119 repeatedly, that the psalmist loves God's law and hates every false way hates every false way, hates all lies and falsehoods. That's a constant theme in Psalm 119. You see it in uh, verses 104 and 105 and, and elsewhere. We also see this in the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, where Jesus Christ Himself reveals that His true love hated, right? True love hates True love is not morally and doctrinally neutral. True love, in order for it to love, the object of its love has to hate the opposite of that object, the the opposition to that object. And so Christ hated false religion and false doctrine. Revelation 2.6, he says, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. These were unrighteous deeds. Jesus hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. He hates their sin. He hates their deeds. Verse 15 of the same chapter, Jesus points this out again uh, to a different church. Thus you have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So again, doctrines and duties, errors and iniquities. And the Lord Jesus Christ does not rejoice in iniquity or error, but He rejoices in the truth. And He's grieved by error. He's grieved by unrighteousness. He hates their doctrine and He hates their deeds. Psalm 97, verse 10, All who love the Lord hate evil. 
Let love, Paul says elsewhere, let love be without hypocrisy. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Uh, We cannot make a peace treaty with false religion and with false doctrine. Doesn't mean that we have a rotten attitude to people that are under the dominion of false religion and false doctrine. We should seek to, uh, like David in Psalm 51, turn transgressors back to the Lord. Seek their conversion, seek their instruction, seek their spiritual good. But we must hate all false religion and all false doctrine. And certainly we should refuse to rejoice in iniquity. That means that if there are cults, if there are heretical groups, if there are Roman Catholics involved in this or that political campaign or social project, we need to be very careful that our involvement does not compromise our hatred of their false doctrines, that we're not in some way condoning or rejoicing in some way in the mystery of iniquity, the man of sin, the Pope himself. Fifthly, true Christian love does not admire and celebrate God's professed enemies. True Christian love does not admire and celebrate God's professed enemies. We need to be very careful. It's not saying a Christian can't be a sports fan, but we need to be very careful. It's not to say a true Christian can't be involved in the world of art or in some sense of entertainment, but we need to be extremely careful that we don't begin to set our sights on ungodly people as role models that we are celebrating and admiring. Psalm 12, verse 8, I think reflects where we're at today. When vileness is exalted among the sons of men, we're told the wicked prowl on every side. The world is exalting wicked people in sports, in politics, across the board, entertainment, everywhere. And we need to be careful that we do not fall into admiring and celebrating God's professed enemies, ungodly people. Psalm 15.4, the person who dwells in God's holy tabernacle. We're told, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. That is considered to, to be minimal, to despise, to consider someone not to be great, but to be small, insignificant, not to dote upon them and celebrate them and admire them. A vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. So be careful with your role models. Psalm 31.6, I hate those serving idols. Okay? Strong statements, but it means that we're disgusted by the moral character. We want their conversion. We want their eternal good. We don't hate them in that sense. But we're disgusted by their moral character. We're not looking to them as role models and admiring them. People who take God's name in vain people who are enemies of God and hate God. Psalm 139, 19 and following, he says, I hate those people with a perfect hatred. I find them to be detestable. I don't want to be like them. I want them to change because it's disgusting. I want them to repent and be saved. Sixthly, true Christian love does not celebrate unjust wars. This is relevant heading into tomorrow. And we're not going to go through a list of all the military conflicts of the last 50 years, but Uh, The fact of the matter is that in our nation, there is a a startling trend of involving our military in non-defensive wars that according to historic, biblical, Christian, and Reformed uh, doctrines of just war theory, 
are unjust wars, non-defensive wars, imperialistic wars all across the globe to maintain the American interest in the world, to maintain the American empire, to maintain the dominance of the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency, to maintain a certain balance in terms of the, the trading of oil, and so on and so forth. Many unjust wars that have nothing to do with the exercise of the power of the sword instituted by God for civil magistrates to enforce laws within their own jurisdiction and to protect their people within their own jurisdiction, but rather sending troops all over the world to police the world as if God gave the power of the sword to one nation as an empire to influence and impact all the other nations of the world. Again, you need to research this for yourself. I'm not going to list all the different wars and give my opinion. But we ought not to celebrate non-defensive military conflicts involving our military men and women. To the extent that our military protects our country from enemies foreign and domestic, we can celebrate that because it reflects the character of God. But if we're dealing with America right or wrong, we'll support the troops even if it's non-defensive, imperialistic warfare. That is ungodly. God hates and abominates hands that shed innocent blood, and every life taken in a non-defensive conflict is murder. Even in terms of recent conflicts, we haven't even declared wars constitutionally. So from that standpoint, even from a legal constitutional perspective, we're sending people to kill other people in other countries willy-nilly, without even a constitutional declaration of war. So there are legal constitutional problems as well. But from a moral standpoint, love does not rejoice in inequity, injustice, unrighteousness. So if there are imperialistic, non-defensive wars, let's not celebrate those. Let's celebrate all of the good work that's done by the military, whatever percentage that may be, but not the unjust warfare that God hates. Seventhly, true Christian love does not turn the gospel into an excuse to soft pedal the grievous nature of sin. True Christian love does not turn the gospel into an excuse to soft pedal and minimize the grievous nature of sin. And sad to say this happens. This happens in the church. It happens in Reformed churches. Paul deals with it throughout the epistle to the Romans, where people who are coming to grips, for instance, with the sovereignty of God in salvation, and they're saying, well, God works all things together for good. God has ordained all things, and even our unrighteousness shows His righteousness, so it glorifies God. Even when we sin, it glorifies God by way of contrast. When believers sin, it glorifies God because He's judged their sin in Christ and satisfied His law. So there, there are many aspects of God's glory that flow forth even from the worst instances of in, iniquity and unrighteousness. And, and that's true. But Romans 3 verse 5 says this, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to His glory, in other words, if God's getting glory even from iniquity, even from sinful things happening in the world according to His plan, He's still getting glory from them, 
Uh, If that's the case, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation, Paul says, is just. So beware, especially people that are new to the Reformed faith and the doctrines of God's sovereign grace, perhaps we're tempted to think, well, because God uses my sin for His glory, because God works my evil for His good purposes, therefore my sin against this other person or that other person or my sexual sin, or my angry temper, or whatever it is, that somehow it's not as bad. Because you see, God received glory, and then God used it to humble me, and, and so I'm coming to grips with sin. It's not so bad. And, and we begin to soft-pedal the evil, and the heinousness, and the grievousness of sin and of iniquity. True Christian love does not do that. It maintains everything we've said about the sovereignty of God without in any way diminishing the heinousness and grievousness of iniquity. And so true Christian love doesn't say, God is sovereign, so I'll rejoice in the iniquity. No, we can rejoice that God worked the evil for good, but we never rejoice in the evil itself. A similar problem, and, and we're hastening to a conclusion here, A similar problem is when we look at the blood of Christ being shed for sinners at the cross. And Jude, verse 4 of the epistle of Jude, tells us that there were some people that were using the grace of God in the gospel, the forgiveness of sins through the death of Christ, they were using this to promote wickedness, to downplay the sinfulness of sin. He says, "...for certain men have crept in unnoticed." who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So what are they doing? They're turning God's grace and forgiving sins through Christ into an excuse for lewdness. Jesus died for my sins, so sin's not as big of a deal. I can engage in lewdness and immorality. 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7. Somebody was doing that in Corinth sexual immorality and what happened was their church discipline no we're told that the corinthians were glorying and boasting in the fact that they had not addressed this issue that they were so tolerant and paul says you're boasting you're glorying no doubt glorying in the gospel and the truths of redemption oh we're showing love to this person involved in scandal He says, that's not good. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Beware of antinomians who turn the grace of God into lewdness. My friends, we have a duty to seek and to advance the cause of truth and righteousness. And we have a duty to do this from the heart. When we grieve over iniquity, when our hearts are burdened with the sins we see around us, like the Apostle Paul, Romans 9, Romans 10, he's burdened, he's grief-stricken. His heart's desire and prayer to God is for his countrymen that they may be saved. If we truly love people in the church, outside of the church, we're not going to rejoice in their iniquity if we truly love ourselves in a biblical sense. No man ever hated his own flesh. We're not going to take offense at being confronted for iniquity. 
We're going to be grieved by our iniquity. We're going to hate it. We're going to despise it. We're going to rejoice in the truth and seek to win others to the truth as well. Well, next time, with God's help, God willing, we'll be considering the positive side of this duty of love to rejoice in the truth. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray this evening that You would impart to us Your love, that You would shed abroad in our hearts Your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that we would have His joy and His gladness rejoicing in the truth, that our heart's desire would be righteousness and holiness and obedience, that we would walk in Your ways as a way of joy and peace and blessedness and delight, And we pray that as we encounter sin in ourselves and in others, that we would hate it, that we would despise it, that we would have the good sense to turn from it unto you through faith and obedience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.